My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Before I play today's episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast, I want to share with you another podcast that I think you will enjoy. If you're enjoying this podcast specifically for the historical content and the humorous perspective on selected moments in history, I have another new podcast to add to your list, Tea Time Thoughts. Much like what I do here on this show, host Kaylin Shelley puts the spotlight on world history and culture and tells stories through a lens of humor and lightness. Each episode spotlights either a specific historical event, perhaps an artistic movement or entire genre of music, and comedically <laughs> spills the tea. But more so, gets you to appreciate something in history that might otherwise be considered rather drab. The episodes are only about 20 to 30 minutes long usually, and Kaylin frequently details the specific blend of tea she's drinking for each episode, which I'm finding particularly advantageous as I am currently exploring different types of tea. Tea Time Thoughts podcast can be found on most major podcast providers, and I highly recommend giving Kaylin some of your time. And now for today's episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for yet another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. We've turned the horn. We've gone past 20 episodes. Most blogs say those who can't pass 20 episodes aren't going to do well. Well, here we are. <laughs> Doing well, I guess. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna go ahead and get right into it today. I have my guest ready to go. Uh, my guest and I have uh, uh, worked quite a bit together here in our hometown of Sheridan, Wyoming. Before that though, we both have had professional careers out in the world. I believe hers was mainly in Seattle and bouncing around all over the I place. I wouldn't say professional, but thank you. You got paid, didn't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> But here we are back in our hometown of Sheridan, Wyoming, living the domestic life and devoting what we can. A lot of our time in the past has been spent to building the community theater, which is nonetheless a very huge part of this business. So my friends and listeners coming to us today is my good old friend, Mary Jo Johnson. Hello, Mary Jo. Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. And it's really great that I could get you on here today. It's been... Uh, Thank you for asking Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know it's just been a heck of a couple of years for you. And and we neither of us have really done a lot 
as far as getting on stage, I just did a couple shows, two shows in two weeks. It was just bonkers, but, <laughs> but you know, I will say this, I would say you and I have paid our dues. We have. <laughs> in spades. Um, <laughs> but I will say, most recently, Mary Jo and I worked in 2018 together. Uh, I directed a production of Terrence McNally's Masterclass. And this was a dream project for me, but it was also a dream project for Mary Jo, who played Maria Callas, who had, I'm not going to exaggerate, about 97% of the lines of the script. And Mary Jo learned on any given night, six and a half percent of them. That'll work. That'll work. I mean, we got through it. At the end we of did. the play, at the it end was, of the play, the light still came up. It was a very, very meaningful time. Oh yeah, and just a, a fantastic, fantastic production. Because that's something that both of us have really been interested in: is just how much of oneself do you have to give to an art before you know that you've given too much. Now. Um, I did want to say something. Uh, our local community college, Mary Jo and I have also paid significant dues to. Um, mm -hmm. but, but your family has long been involved in arts and arts promotion and music. And you have a couple of family members that have passed who have had uh, memorial scholarships in their name. Now I know about mm -hmm. the one, uh, your sister has had one. Right. She just passed away a number of years ago. Is that still going on for, for sharing? Very much so. We, yep. Yep. We have the Catherine Scatula Music Memorial Scholarship that we actually did expand to both music and theater in any field. It doesn't have to just be performance. It can be teaching, um, therapy, uh, business, just wherever. Anyway, awesome. it's uh, $1,000 for um, a student's freshman year and to anywhere in the United States. That one's for Sheridan High School students mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. my sister was a uh, class of 72. <laughs> uh, but then my father passed away a year ago, November 4th, and mm -hmm. he was a banker in his day job for over 50 years, but he just had a huge love for community theater and he served for very many, uh, many years on the Griffith Foundation board and in uh, they were coming up with a way well how can we honor Roman Scatula's memory and so they established a $2,000 a year for perpetuity to any Sheridan College performing arts student. That's awesome. Whether it be music or, or theater or dance so mm -hmm. pretty special. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great way. I mean, you know, to continue that legacy of giving to the arts and helping the arts flourish. And that's absolutely that's fantastic. I'm so glad that, that was able to happen. So me too. Yeah. Well, I have a great topic for us to talk about today. And I'm it's, on pins and needles. Oh my gosh. So uh, my friends and listeners, I, 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 I'm not trying to false lead you here. Uh, uh, Mary Jo and I um, see each other on a daily basis, and I chat about this program a lot. And I may or may not have told her inadvertently what this topic is a long time ago before she I was have able no to... idea. <laughs> but I may have spilled the tea a little bit. And Mary Jo may get a light bulb here when I ask her the question that we're going to start off with. So this like might... I'm on a game show. Woo! <laughs> There's unfortunately no price. So I guess I'll start with this uh, question here, Mary Jo. 
why do we adhere to any kind of superstition on stage? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Why do we? Or, or I was thinking about this during the World Series. Why do baseball players have just these goofy, goofy oh, yeah. things that, you know, but we think <laughs> of the the um, the unnamed play or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the expressions or, you know, you can't wear this or that on this, you know. Mm-hmm. Why do mm-hmm. we? Mm, Where does this a, come from? That's an interesting question. Let's go ahead and find out. <laughs> it has long been a part of culture to believe in superstitions, as many societies have tried to deal with inexplicable phenomena. To be honest with ourselves, sometimes happenstance cannot be avoided as much as we as people would like to control the outcome. Oftentimes, these are these superstitions that are meant to control these unforeseen outcomes. They could be very individual or very personal, such as carrying a good luck charm. You know, maybe you wear like a locket. Yeah, rabbit's foot. Or the superstition can take the form of a routine, such as an athlete tying shoes in a particular order before getting out onto the court. These are all meant to sway the outcome of an individual pursuit, but sometimes superstitions can even come in the form of standards that groups of people are, for lack of a better word, forced to accept and adhere to. (laughs) Many buildings that have more than 13 floors will often omit numbering the 13th floor. That's right. Yep, skipping from the 12th to the 14th as the number 13 is considered unlucky. And you can see the same thing on commercial airplanes that will omit the 13th row of seats going from 12 to- Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna look next time I fly. (laughs) And I'm sure the same is frequently done in theater. And we have a couple big houses that have at least 13 rows, but I think I think most of them are lettered. So it's like row A, yeah. row B, row C. Do they skip the 13th letter? I have, oh, which would be J, M? Is that M? It is M. Oh, no, I think we still do have a row M. Now I want to go look. And your name starts with M. And driving to town. Right. But speaking of which, live theater is absolutely that, live. And one element of live theater that must be taken into account is the acceptance of the inevitability of the unexpected. This can be hard to accept, but let's be honest, we can't always control the circumstances of a live event. And Mary Jo, I'm gonna put you on the spot here for a little bit for our final performance of Masterclass. It wasn't the final one. It was the final of the first weekend. Oh, that's right, that's right. You had some respiratory distress. I did. I had to leave the stage <laughs> and go down and cough up a lung. And I was trying so hard not to cry because that would make more mucus. And I had I had Sharon's solo the amount of time to cough out all this crud on oh, my lanta. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> and we, we, did were, we did we it. We did it. We did it. And I know I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there up in the booth. And okay, so we do have the time for the solo. Okay, maybe she'll be back by then. And she's not back by then. And <laughs> our, our actress playing Sharon goes, let me go look after Ma- Madame Callis <laughs> and goes off stage. And there's our piano player. This is his first play ever. Ever. And, and he's staring at me in the booth, just going, 
save my life. And I, I just look at him I, and, and I, I move my fingers like I'm moving across the keyboard and he goes, oh, play more songs. And he just started playing music until he got back and nobody knew anything was wrong. They didn't. <laughs> I probably thought, oh, that poor woman, she needs oh. to go, you know, take a breath. <laughs> well, they, they weren't kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, in order to avoid such pitfalls and perils on stage, a number of long-held traditions have been practiced in the theater to lessen the possibility of any bad juju affecting the outcome of an evening's performance or the production as a whole. Now, I'm not trying to slight anyone's tightly held beliefs. In the past, I know that I myself have been prone to making, some, making sure some superstitions are upheld when I practice theater. But today, I wanna go over several that we may or may not heard of and maybe get an idea about why we do them and whether or not we should do them in the event that we're not doing them already. <laughs> oh, this will be fun. Okay. So let's talk about some of the more widely known superstitions and I'll present these in this way. I'll talk about the superstition and what the expected outcome would be if the superstition is not upheld. Then I'll describe the very practical reasons why we should probably keep doing them, knowing full well that there may not be a practical reason to keep up the practice. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, how about this? I'll tell you the superstition. And if you want to take a stab at why we're doing it or what hey. happened, I would love to hear that. Okay. Oh, fun. All right. So here we go. Number one, break a leg. I think I actually kind of know this one, I think. Ooh, okay, okay. So Maybe. Uh, so instead of saying good luck to a theater artist before a show, it's best to say break a leg in order to avoid any kind of mishap that could befall a production or a single performance. So you think you know why? Yes. <laughs> Go for it. Okay, this is what I have, have always heard, that the stages were slanted Hence the expression upstage and downstage. Right, the, the and, right stage, yeah. And they had, in, in order to, to take their bow, they were encouraged to, to bow like with one leg sticking out kind of deal instead oh. of squatting on the other. <laughs> and then the lower they could go, if, if they actually did go <laughs> low enough to break their leg, then they were excellent performers. Obviously quite fortunate. I yeah. think I, I have heard that. But in my research for this episode, that is one didn't it totally a myth? No, what, no, it could be. It could be. Okay. So, all right. Now, obviously, break okay. a leg is an odd thing to say to any performer who it will is. have to be walking or dancing on stage. But whatever. Now, this comes from the belief instilled in theater long, long ago that ghosts and spirits haunt every theater building, and they probably okay. do. But sometimes we just don't know. So, therefore, to trick the nasty spirits. Rather than wishing each other fortune, performers would loudly wish each other harm. In this case, broken legs. Ah. To trick the nasty ghosts and go, oh, well, they're already planning on hurting each other. Because <laughs> spirits aren't smart. <laughs> no, no, they're pretty superficial. However, here are some possible legitimate reasons for this phrase. Now, in Renaissance times, actors would receive tips from the audience in the form of coins thrown to the stage. And in order to collect the reward, the actor would have to bend down and kneel to the floor or break the line of the leg. See, see, but I think- Show I Show me the money. Right? <laughs> now, here's another one that's kind of fun. This also comes from vaudeville. 
in which theaters would overbook their nightly showings. And the only way a performer would get paid if they would actually appear on stage, which due to the overbooking might not happen. So if the performer wouldn't get on stage, they wouldn't be paid. Therefore, if a performer should be fortunate enough to enter the stage from the wings, the actor is breaking the leg line as the curtains that emerge from the sides of the stage are called the legs. So if you get past the legs, you've broken the leg and you get paid. Good fortune. I, I like that one. Right, right. That one kind of makes yes, more sense that to makes, me. That's, so it, here's to you getting on stage. Right, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully I you get like out it. Mm -hmm. Now, there are also a number of cle clever versions of this all throughout the performing arts, and they're equally kind of weird. In opera, singers will say, toy, toy, toy. Yes. And some can even mimic spitting over each shoulder when they say the toys. That's been tradition too, because it's believed that, you know, spitting before a performance might be good luck. So toy, toy, toy. Okay. <laughs> it's also common in opera to say, Bocca al lupo, which translates from Italian to mean in the wolf's mouth. <laughs> We're going into uncertainty, possibly to danger. AKA Boca, the audience. The audience, yeah. Now, if Bocca al lupo is said to you, your appropriate response is crepi il lupo, which means may the wolf die. I like it. Into the wolf's mouth, may the wolf die. <laughs> <laughs> In the circus, for somewhat obvious reasons, performers will say to each other, bump a nose. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Mm -hmm. And finally, to make sure that my episode stays explicit, dancers will often say merde to their fellow yes. dancers before oui, performance, oui. which literally transla translated from French to English means shit. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> so you have and it's all so this fun to say. You have these wonderfully taut, very lean people walking around to each other and just going, Shit. and that means good <laughs> luck to you. Yeah. So. <laughs> there we go, break a leg. Okay. okay. Next, avoid trios of candles. Oh, I've never heard this in my <laughs> life. What? <laughs> yeah, there's gonna be several of these that I'm sure you're going, excuse me. So trios Well, that doesn't bode well for Phantom of the Opera's boat scene, does it? <laughs> well, that's that's like hundreds of candles. I think that's fine, <laughs> but it's specifically three. So if there are three candles oh, on stage- Just three. Just three. This okay. is bad news, okay? What's the candle back? Yeah, so any idea why avoiding trios Not of candles? Not a clue. Not a clue. All right, well, this one is a little more unusual, but according to myth, lighting one candle on stage is okay. Lighting two is acceptable, but three is either a portent of great fortune or great disaster, depending on individual perspective. You see, the superstition states that if three candles are lit on stage, it's generally disastrous, but the person standing closest to the shortest cancel is said to be the next person to marry or die. Isn't that the same thing? Ha! <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I, and I couldn't find any origin to like somebody saying, no, it had to be the longest. No, it had to be the shortest. No, it had to be the one to the left or the right. No, it was always the shortest. If you're, if you're the person standing next to the shortest, you're gonna marry or you're gonna die. Okay. Now, 
What the, year was this established? Do you know? Oh, oh okay. So um, I, I'll take it back to an earlier representation here. Okay. The truth of the matter is it's a fire hazard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, in much older days and still somewhat currently, theater buildings were constructed of and contained a vast array of highly combustible materials. <laughs> now, a trio of candles was noted on stage during a performance of Henry VIII at Shakespeare's Globe Theater in 1613. Oh. A cannon was shot off later in the performance, which ignited something on stage and the fire quickly spread to the thatched roof and Shakespeare's Globe burned to the ground. But what they had seen was uh -huh. the candle. Yes, yes. So, I yep. get it. Uh-huh, so they went, ah, it was the candles. In point of fact, having more than one candle burning on stage just increases the actual chance for fire danger. And many theaters have burned down because of excessive candles on stage. Okay. So I think somewhere along the line, it just went from factual to- Absurd. A, yeah, absurd. And we go, well, we, sh we just shouldn't. Yeah, okay. Next. Yes. No real money or jewelry on stage. Why not? <laughs> well, much like saying break a leg, it's just meant to ward off any bad juju. Theater artists have avoided using any kind of actual jewelry or currency while on stage. And while there's no specific expected outcome of wearing, uh, wearing jewelry or using actual money, it's just considered bad luck. So we have to get those chocolate coins in the gold wrappers. Right, right. And I think this is where the term costume jewelry comes from. Totally makes sense. Yep. Now, where this really comes from is also from Renaissance times and is actually pretty easy to explain. <laughs> On one hand, acting companies would often employ beggars for large crowd scenes and would often just find real props stolen at the end of the show's run, surreptitiously finding their way into the pockets of the lowlifes hired to be in shows. Hmm. <laughs> Are we the, surprised? Yeah, right. On the other hand, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for some of the groundlings to hop on stage and try to sneak away with a prop that appeared valuable. <laughs> <laughs> so, hence, keep money off the stage and wear costume jewelry. Right. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? It's really bizarre. Right? Okay. Uh, we're going to get even more. I mean, these get more weird as we go along. Don't use mirrors on stage. Hmm. Yeah, just a, hmm, okay. Well, basically, mirrors are obviously portals to hell or other unseemly realms, and using them on stage is actively courting disaster and peril to befall the actors, the production, and the theater itself. That or you're just going to get the reflection of the stage lights and go blind. <laughs> That's exactly why it's a superstition. <laughs> because you're right. Hello. With modern stage lighting, not only are you potentially blinding your audience. But, you know, even if the mirror is not facing the audience, it's going to catch some light somewhere and make weird light on the stage. That's not good for anybody. So you got it. You got that one. Yay. <laughs> okay. So here's one more kind of commonplace one, and then we'll get into some really obscure and or infamous superstitions, saving the two big ones for last. So this superstition has to do with bouquets for performers and directors and when they should be given. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Seems kind of straightforward. Bouquets yeah. come for a performance well done. Okay. Right. Now, here again, just to avoid bad luck, and that's pretty much the only thing. It's not, 
anything like you know uh, your seventh child will die or you know you will right uh, yeah it's just to avoid bad luck performers should never be given flowers before a show why it's maintained that the performer must earn their reward so if a performer does a good job on stage the flowers can be given as that reward <laughs> i don't agree fate you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's one that I didn't know about, and I loved hearing about this. There's one odd tradition that may still be done here and there. Okay. Give the director a graveyard bouquet. What? Yep. Here's a quote I found from a blog on this superstition. When a theater production closes, it is considered good luck to give the director a bouquet of flowers stolen from a graveyard. This macabre symbolic gesture obviously denotes the end of a production. Historically, actors did not make a lot of money, so one might assume that this was an inexpensive way to say thank you to the director while buttering him up for the next round of auditions. Screw that. You're not getting cast in any of my future shows if you give me dead people's flowers. Ixnay on A-play. No, no, no. No, no, no. All right, here we go. The oddballs. The oddballs. That wasn't odd. That was odd, but these get stranger. <clears throat> oh, yay. Don't wear green or blue on stage. Those are two of my best colors. <laughs> well, I mean, again, mainly this has to do with the, con the colors being considered unlucky. I mean, green has a classic association with death or sickness dating back millennia. And in addition, some of the seven deadly sins are associated with green, such as envy. <laughs> it's even suggested that green rooms, the rooms where actors and musicians can get refreshments or just wait for the show to start, should also not be painted green for all of these reasons, despite being named the green room. Hmm. <laughs> Thoroughly nonplussed, Mary Jo trudges forward. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't care. I like green and blue. Right. Mainly yeah, because I, they're my Seahawks colors. But uh, anywho, see, they, right, yep. Digress, yeah. except for today. <laughs> but here's here's a, a, a very famous incident involving green. Here's a quote. In 1673, French playwright and actor Moliere was mm -hmm. performing in he was performing in his play The Imaginary Invalid when he suffered a coughing fit on stage. <laughs> but his, I'm not alone. His was brought on by tuberculosis, and he started to hemorrhage. <laughs> was he wearing green? He finished the performance, but died a few hours later, still in his green costume. Oh. I didn't know that about Moliere. <laughs> that he Me died. either. And so then they buried him, and they gave his flowers to the director. There we go. Yep. <laughs> Thus, green costumes were viewed with hesitation or refusal from then on, as the pigment was obviously hexed. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, all the other productions before that that had green in it, fine, but Moliere dies, and now we got to create yeah. a superstition. Yeah, Yeah. And as far as blue is concerned, what color does a corpse turn when it dies? Gray. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm thinking of Dawn of the Dead. I'm not giving in. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the practical stuff here. Okay. Starting with green, 
in a practical in a practical sense, the green stigma had already been hanging around because of, you know green with envy, et cetera. But when theatrical lighting first started to be introduced, now in the early oh. years of stage lighting, an instrument threw light by burning a chemical called quicklime. So when someone was in the light cast by these, they would be considered in, in the limelight. And true to the term, the light gave off something of a greenish glow. <laughs> so it's kind of like when you're in uh, uh, under fluorescent lights and everything is like blue or yellow. It just, uh, yeah. mm. there, therefore, if any character would be wearing a green costume in the green light, the green of the costume might have basically been canceled out. <laughs> oh, okay. Green light is just weird anyway. It works strangely with some skin colors and just causes problems. Thus, don't wear green on stage. Fine. And now, the practicality behind the blue superstition. Okay. In the Western world, the color blue was extremely difficult to reproduce as very few sources of the color existed in nature. Plus the cost of reproducing a blue pigment was incredibly expensive to do effectively. In fact, the only ancient culture that was able to do so was the Egyptian culture. They got the lapis lazuli gem and crushed it yep. into a whole bunch of their stuff. And mainly they could afford it. <laughs> and here's the rub. Those who could afford it could have blue in their lives. And this is the way it ended up being for literally centuries. Blue was simply strictly associated with nobility and royalty. But that didn't stop costume designers from wanting blue on stage, especially since most ancient and Renaissance tragedies were about <laughs> royalty. Mm -hmm. So at one point, theater producers started the rumor that blue costumes were unlucky, when in fact, they just didn't want to put up the money for the dye. Interesting. <laughs> Give me a blue dress. No. That. No, they're unlucky. You cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never heard that before. And then I have I, not either. I just think about like, well, I guess Wicked's out. We can't watch Wicked. Yeah, that's ever. pretty green. Ever, ever. And dear, <laughs> dear Evan Hansen, that's right, the blue stripe, horizontal the blue stripe. stripe. Yeah, yeah. Don't yep. look good on everybody. Can't do it, can't do it. Okay, here's the next one. Hey. Don't wear peacock feathers on stage. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I guess no burlesque then, ever. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now with this one, I'll start with the practical side of the superstition. Easy and quick answer, they're pretty and distracting. And if someone is distracted for even a moment in the audience, they might lose their place in watching the story on stage or a designer is unconsciously upstaging the actors. <laughs> now I'm serious. The you know, really theater people are kind of an awful lot, aren't they? <laughs> uh, we're the most self-centered, crummy, no, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> you put more peacock feathers on her costume than mine, and they should obviously be looking at me. So, yeah. <laughs> Here again, there's no specific intended outcome, just general bad luck. Okay. However, peacock feathers actually have a centuries-old history of being portents of doom. Mainly 
due to the eyeball pattern near the tip of the feather. I can understand that. Okay. The eyeball is considered to be an evil eye in Greek and British lore, and some cultures suggest that it is the eye of the demon Lilith. Who's Lilith? She's an ancient uh, Jewish uh, demon. I wonder if that's why that character was named that on Frasier. Anyway, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Could be. By endowing peacock feathers with her visage, she is seeking out new souls to possess or consume. Oh, and plus, Lilith is often associated with sudden and unexplained infant deaths. And who wants to be associated with that? Oh. Mm-hmm. Darn Lilith. So... It was considered a bad omen to receive peacock feathers as gifts and especially to avoid using them as household decorations. Well, neat, because one whole room of my house is peacock. <laughs> well, don't put any babies in there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read some stories where people actually suggested that, like, like a, a, a child had suddenly died. And then the first question that was asked is, did you have any peacock feathers hanging? And they're like, I don't know my baby. What are you talking uh, Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you could have avoided this. So don't mm. use them in household decorations and definitely don't use peacock feathers on stage ever. I'm not going to listen to that. Yep. Yep. Next one. Okay. Never whistle backstage. Oh dear. Why not? You haven't heard this one? No. Because when I start, and I, I may I, or may not have whistled a time or two. Oh boy! All right. Well, it has long been said that whistling backstage has been the cause of many incidents of people being injured by scenery that is suspended in the air. Again, the result of the act is just supposed to be bad luck or death. Okay? Not maiming or. Oh, it, you could. You yeah. I mean, that's bad luck to be maimed. Now, in the long run, this superstition actually comes from the European theater during Victorian times, and most theaters were hemp houses. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the term hemp house, it does not suggest that a theater was a locus for cannabis-related activities, although it might be nonetheless, depending on the casting crew involved with the production. Mm -hmm. Rather, <laughs> when a theater is called a hemp house, it means that the backstage scene-changing system uses natural hemp ropes, pulleys, and sandbags. Okay. These days, most theaters have converted to counterweight systems and synthetic ropes, which generally are more durable and easier to use. Sure. But getting back to hemp houses, when this scene-changing system grew in popularity, the industry required backstage workers who knew good ropes and knots. Even today, many trained theater technicians are unskilled when it comes to operating a hemp system due to the prevalence of manual or automated counterweight systems. But in the early days of hemp houses, someone got the bright idea to hire sailors and prepare theaters to run shows during production. And Why? if anyone whistles, sailors do, because they deal with ropes all yep. the time. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, sailors knew knots and ropes better than anyone else. But why no whistling? Here's a quote. Early cueing for set changes was whistling because that's what the sailors used to communicate over loud winds and waves on boats. It was just easier to hear than a man on deck shouting up to the crow's nest. You gotcha. could hear a whistle over that. And if someone not working were to whistle in the theater, it could be heard as a false cue leading to confusion and perhaps injury. That Hemp totally houses. makes sense. Right, right. Now, even though hemp houses have pretty much been phased out, they are still 
a few, I mean, and by a few, I'm sure there's hundreds, but I mean, a few. Right. The superstition has remained as theater buildings do maintain that aura of supernatural forces at work, despite having a very practical origin. I like that story. I never knew that. Isn't that neat? Yeah. <laughs> you just see these grimy sailors just up in the wings. These <laughs> <laughs> little bird, bird calls. <laughs> and everybody bounced. <laughs> Down on this deck is like, oh, yes, what are you doing? And then all of a sudden, the scenery comes flying in. And no, no more whistling. <laughs> yeah. We don't want so, that chandelier falling when it's not supposed to. That's right. That's right. Okay. Here's a really obscure one, but I like this a lot. And I even said it today as I left the theater. Olive Thomas. Do you know too much about the silent film star, Olive Thomas? Never heard of her at all. Mm, okay. Olive was active at the beginning of the 20s. I feel like I'm at school. <laughs> Olive was active at the beginning of the 20th century. And while she was known more for her film career, Olive got her start in showbiz at the New Amsterdam Theater in New York City. This is the one that Disney owns, and this is where Aladdin is right now. Okay. And if you haven't listened to my episode uh, number three on the deuce, go back and catch up on that one, that cool slice of theater history. But for those of you in the know, you'll remember that the new Amsterdam presented the Ziegfeld Follies for many years. Olive was a featured member in that show, as well as the more lurid late night show in the same space, The Midnight Frolic. Ooh. <laughs> so without really needing to say it, Olive was a pretty good-looking woman by conventional standards. <laughs> she's a Follies girl, and she's in a burlesque show. <laughs> and she has, perhaps, endowment. Those looks got her into Hollywood, where she met her husband, actor Jack Pickford, the brother of another famed film Mary. star. Mary Pickford, yes. So how is Olive involved with superstition? Oh, I love this. Well... It's due to her rather unfortunate death. Jack and Olive were quite the happy couple and were consummate party goers. And after months of an exhaustive work schedule and an equally exhaustive nightlife, Jack and Olive took a second honeymoon to Paris in August 1920 and planned to stay there for several weeks. On the night of September 5th, after a night on the town in which the two had become fairly intoxicated, mm -hmm. they returned to their suite where Jack immediately fell asleep. Now here's an account of what occurred thereafter. Quote, he lay in bed while his wife went to the bathroom to take medicine for a headache. Oh my God, she exclaimed. Jack, in his telling, rushed in to find Olive holding a bottle of toxic mercury bichloride, which she had ingested by mistake. Why was it even in the bathroom? Hmm, I'll tell you here in a moment. Jack immediately called for a doctor who pumped Olive's stomach and rushed her to a hospital, by which time she was blinded and her vocal cords corroded. Oh my she, she died five days later, just weeks before her 26th birthday. Oh. Now, the physician ultimately ruled the poisoning accidental, and Jack was cleared from any suspicion of malicious intent. It turns out that Olive thought that the tonic may have aided with her headache, when actually the medicine was a topical solution to help with Jack's chronic syphilis. He was a serial womanizer and contracted the disease after they were married. Oh, neat. <laughs> of course it was. And of course he did. Just... Rub it on the affected area. Nonetheless, 
Olive was mourned worldwide as she was one of the brightest stars in Hollywood at the time. Now, as it relates to theater, her ghost is said to have been spotted many times at the new Amsterdam theater, despite dying in Paris, but having a significant portion of her career in that building. Mm -hmm. When her ghost is seen, she's always seen dressed in green and holding a small a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and three candles. <laughs> And a black cat. Uh, no, she's holding a small glass bottle similar to the one that may have held the poison she ingested. Mm. Now, while her ghost has not necessarily been malicious, it's not worth tempting the fates, right? Therefore, her portrait hangs just by the stage door. So as you leave for the night, you are to say goodbye to Olive or face potential fateful consequences. Do you touch the picture too? I, I don't know. You might kiss it. You might, you know, like kiss your hand and then touch your hand to the glass. But yeah, now I have a friend who's currently in Aladdin on Broadway right now. And I wrote him and I said, hey, I have a question for you about Olive Thomas. And he goes, oh, go. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, it's that exciting. And he said, yeah, I've had, I've had seriously several Olive experiences. So I, this is oh. one I, I, I adhere to very deeply. Really? <laughs> and it's only the New Amsterdam. And like, like I said, she's not malicious or anything. She just kind of appears and is creepy. <laughs> so whatever oh. happened to Jack? Eh, he probably moved on. I didn't find out. I would imagine that that uh, lifestyle <clears throat> caught up. Got him in the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now speaking of ghosts, here yes. we go. We're getting into our big two. Okay. Make sure to turn on a ghost light when leaving the theater for the night. Well, they can find their way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, for those of you who don't know, the ghost light is basically like a floor lamp with a bare bulb, or the bulb might have a wire cage around it. It's left in the middle of the stage in a theater space, and it is the responsibility of the last person leaving a theater space to make sure it is placed and turned on before leaving for the night. Now, the origins of the ghost light are not entirely clear, but in a return to form for this episode, this ghost light is meant to appease the ghosts that haunt every theater. Its purpose in this regard is somewhat dubious, as some suggest that it's to shoo away spiteful spirits, whereas others suggest that the ghost light gives lonely theater ghosts something to play with and dance around. <laughs> Jazz hands. Jazz hands! Since most theater ghosts are supposed to be former theater artists, it makes sense that their spirits are either lonely or have ill intent. Anyway. <laughs> Now, truthfully, this is a health and safety issue. Yes. You <laughs> since, think? Since theaters are often places that have very changing environments on stage, oh, I don't know, stairs, trap doors, heavy scenery that could squash someone, etc. Mm -hmm. Having a single light that will allow anyone entering the dark space to be able to see just makes things safer. <laughs> In fact, it started to be somewhat required. Before theaters had electric stage lighting, many houses were lit by gas lights. At least one light had to be kept burning overnight to make sure the gas lines stayed clean of debris and dirt. So there was your ghost light. Okay. But closer to today, when electric lights were more widely adopted, a ghost light was required in union contracts so that technicians or rehearsal piano players could enter and set up the space before the full arrangement of lights would be turned on. There you go. It made sense. Total it sense. It was required in contracts. But on the more mythical side, 
there was a story of a robber who broke into a darkened theater space and fell off the stage, breaking his leg. Uh, uh. <laughs> the story goes that the robber sued the theater building and won the case. Because it didn't have a ghost light. It didn't have a ghost light. So from then on, it was considered just simple bad luck to leave a theater space completely dark. Thus, the ghost light. And the criminal wins. <laughs> and the criminal wins. <laughs> well, we're not going to get caught by that stupid thing again. <laughs> yeah. Get the light bulbs right now. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about the big one. And I'm going to avoid saying the name of the play here oh, simply yes. out of superstitious intent. I've said it on yes. other episodes and it was fine. On those episodes, nothing bad happened and it was purely for academic purposes. But here we're talking about superstitions. Yes. <laughs> and I'm gonna go ahead and be superstitious. Okay. The Scottish play. Yes. If we're going to talk theater superstitions, there is none bigger than saying the name of a particular Shakespeare play set in medieval Scotland about the title character and his wife's quest to usurp the throne of Scotland, leaving a trail of bodies in their wake. Yeah, it's kind of bloody. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I Time mean, or two. Uh-huh, yeah. The title character gets beheaded and they bring his head back out on stage. Hey, look, I promise, he's dead. The show is said to be cursed, and there are literally thousands of stories of disaster and woe to accompany productions of this play. And as you're probably aware, the play involves a trio of witches who chant some incantations throughout the play. Some believe that Shakespeare used actual witches' rites and rituals as source material for the lines. <laughs> I'm looking at Mary Jo's face and it's just screwing up into this like, and now I don't know if I trust it or not. <laughs> and some of those may have been written ad verbatim from spell books. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> So to this day, it's considered bad luck to perform this play or even to say its name within a theater space. And I know people who will not be in the building when a production of this is being performed. Really? Yep, yep. And I can't, I'm so excited for, to go see if it ever comes here, Denzel <laughs> Washington and- Oh, yes! And, uh, uh, Francis, Francis, Francis McDormand's mm -hmm. film. Yes. So- Here's some examples of when this play has gone awry. Quote, according to folklore, the play's history of bad luck began with its first performance circa 1606, when the actor scheduled to portray Lady M suddenly, mm -hmm. suddenly died and Shakespeare was forced to replace him by standing in for him. <laughs> really? Yep. In another 17th century production held in Amsterdam, the actor playing King Duncan was allegedly killed in front of a live audience when a real dagger was used in place of the stage prop during the stabbing scene. <laughs> Likewise, actor Harold Norman, who repeatedly did not believe in superstition, died after his stage battle became a little too realistic when playing the title character in 1947. This play has also led to at least three famous riots when the play is being performed, 
one of which I detailed in episode eight of this podcast, The Incident in Astor Place, in which 15,000 rioters caused enough damage to the Astor Place Theater in New York City that it had to be demolished, and at least 22 people were killed and hundreds more injured by militia called in to quell the disturbance. Well, then. <laughs> so go back. Where, where does, where does the, this originate? Well, I think it's just, uh, you know, when it was first done because uh, the title character gets inspired by yes. this trio of witches. Okay. They say things that sound like what actual witches might say. Okay. And I'm sure people in the audience went, oh my God, those are actual witch words. <laughs> and went home and wet the bed. <laughs> so today we basically call it either the Scottish play or mm -hmm. the Bard's play. And since it is very unfortunately popular with audiences. And it's done all the time. <laughs> these theater companies see the need to court disaster and stage productions time and time again. Because it's just so good. It is so good. It's a really good play and it gives actors Great opportunity for some really meaty characters. I will never forget seeing the video of Judy Dench play it uh, when she's doing the out, out, damn spot scene. Yes. And she makes this cry that starts as kind of like a strangled moan. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes this banshee wail and is the most frightening thing I've ever heard. Oh my gosh. Who yeah. Played, who played her spousal unit? Oh, geez. I can't remember in that one. It might have been McKellen. Okay. It might have been. Yeah. But uh, uh, I just remember <laughs> her just, uh, just high pitched and terrifying. It was great. But yeesh. Yeah. So there you have it. Theater superstitions. superstitions. Personally, I don't adhere to many of these. But as theater artists, we never know what's going to distract our comrades in arms. So it's always best to respect the wishes of those around you. And here are just a few more that I found to end the episode today. I didn't want to deep dive on any of these. I just thought okay. it was, I thought they were hilarious. Okay. Never apply makeup with a rabbit's foot. Good tip. <laughs> Whether it's for good luck or maybe they're just soft. I don't know. They, they feel like a brush. They are I don't know. soft. Yeah. Uh -huh. Never say the last lines of a show before opening night. Like ever or before you go on stage. I mean, you kind of have to practice. No, no. No, even in rehearsal, we go, okay, we're going to memorize that line, but we're not going to say it. That's silly. That's absurd. <laughs> Never open a show on a Friday. Okay. <laughs> Why? Just don't. Just don't. Um, Never place shoes or hats on dressing room furniture. I That's may like, or may not have broken that one. Yep. Mm -hmm. Never knit in the wings. <laughs> I don't knit out of the wings, so I'm good there. Like the Ooh. only thing I can, I can only think that it's because they involve long, slender, sharp needles. And, uh, yeah. You know, if, if and you, impalement. Ooh, gonna, yeah, exactly. And um, whistling. Mm -hmm. Never wear new makeup on opening night. Uh-oh. <laughs> Never say the theater is closed. That could invoke the plague. Instead, say it's dark. Now I've heard that. Yeah. I didn't think I'd be inviting the plague. You know. And yet here we are. Here we are. <laughs> yes. And never exit the dressing room right foot first. Why the mayor did not. 
Aaron. This has just been so fun to like, I mean, this is an audio format, but I'm recording this in Zoom and I'm seeing all of your facial expressions. And every time I throw out a new one, it's just like the gears in Mary Jo's head have stopped. <laughs> like, there's, there's no more. The belt has slipped off. <laughs> I mean, I know I've been guilty of that. I know uh, there was a show I did where before I went on stage, I would have to go off by myself, find a private little area in the building. I do like a 10 minute breathing and relaxation exercise every night. And I don't play the piano, but I know like one song that's just basically chords. Ding, and I'd ding, ding, yeah, ding. more or less. Mm -hmm. And I'd play that song. And however effectively I played that song, that meant that that's how good my show was going to be that night. So if I screwed up a little bit, I wasn't focused. Oh. <laughs> I just filled my head with all this nonsense. And then I get down on stage and there's people literally like they are off stage. They're getting their butt taped, uh, you know, because they, it's got to go in some uh, amazing yeah. costume. And uh -huh. they're, you know, they're talking about green or blue. That's not going to be blue. And they're talking about what they're going to do later on. And then they hear their cue and they're like, oh, shit, I got to go. And they go on stage. And here I've just spent the last half hour honing my instrument. Yes. <laughs> your craft. <laughs> yep. I mean, yeah, there are there are things that you hear and you go, yeah, it's probably a good idea not to do that, even though there's act, there's no reason why I, if I did that, that it would be bad. Right. You're, I think you're doing self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yes. Yeah. Did yeah, I tell you uh, before that theater people are really pretty? <laughs> <laughs> we can be. We we have known. We have been known to make believe, as it were. Uh, <laughs> but there are things we also do elsewhere. You know, sure. like uh, you know, watch out for ladders. Don't walk underneath them. You know, stuff like that. I mean, a very practical reason there, whoever is on the ladder might drop something on you or drop himself on you. Don't exactly. go under the ladder. <laughs> black cats. I've had several black cats and they are very friendly and wonderful. But, yes. So I don't know. On the other hand, like I can absolutely understand wanting everything to go correctly and doing, oh, everything, doing everything you can, even against the unforeseen. Because if you screw up, it's just so much easier to blame the superstition than your own mm -hmm. just silly yep. nonsense that is yep. going on with your either lack of preparation or, mm -hmm. you know, what have you. But at the same time, you know, if I were to say that in a dressing room and somebody said, hey, please don't say that, that makes me nervous. I would go, oh, well, all right. <laughs> and I don't want to set you off and have you be off your equilibrium for the show yeah yes. even though that is bonkers it's great fun <laughs> well there we go mary joe oh this has been so much fun thank you superstitions and I things i want to go look up that? all of thomas now right but even now i'm definitely like i don't care i'm gonna wear blue and green on stage i'll probably whistle backstage and if give me that's three candles yep and if the Scottish play ever comes, I'll probably go see it, depending on who's in it. Well, there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and listeners, this has been another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I want to thank you for sticking around with us. And we'll get another episode out to you in a couple of weeks. And I will see you at intermission.